Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you could find a seat, that would be much appreciated. Sassy church. That was good. All right. Uh, football playoff games are about to start, so do me a favor and put this thing on Do Not Disturb if you're not using it for a Bible. That's the little crescent moon on your iPhones. One time I said it and didn't explain it, but it's the crescent moon right here. Swipe up. Do not disturb. Just be with me for the next 57-ish minutes. That'll be great. Um, It's a new year. 2020. New years mean a lot of things. It means resolutions for some people. Some people are above resolutions and they say we're not going to do that. I get it. Uh, It means new opportunities on the horizon, whether it's jobs or schools or some people are graduating college or high school, Uh, new family things, marriages, uh, kids coming, um, possibly deaths, whatever it be. There's a lot of newness on the horizon when you approach a new year. It's often a time to reflect as people approach uh, New Year's Eve. They, They look back on the last year and Maybe what was realized or what wasn't realized or what they had hoped to attain and what they didn't attain. Um, It's always interesting to go to the gym on New Year's Day because it's packed full of people. Uh, People who are trying to meet their New Year's resolutions and three weeks later, statistically, they're not there. Uh, And it's kind of sad. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad that people aren't just aren't quite following through. But I feel like what happens a lot of times with New Year's is that we introspect, which is in some regards good, but then our goals and our aims fall out of that. So we look at ourselves, and then our goals are self-focused. And that's what we're going to address here today. We're going to be in the book of Haggai, which is right there. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Haggai, so if you could turn your Bibles um, to the book of Haggai, here's what I tell the youth. Please don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. The table of contents is how we learn. That's okay. There's no shame in using the table of contents. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's the, one of the last books in your Old Testament. But if you could turn there, that would be great. Haggai is working with the remnant people who have returned from exile in Babylon... And if you remember what we just finished in the book of Esther, where were Esther and her people? Babylon. Yeah. Good. Good. It's like when you're talking to a little kid and they don't say it and you just say it for them. Um, Haggai 1. So they're returning from exile in Babylon. And it's interesting because this is the remnant people that God chose for himself. Remember, he's saying through the prophets, I'm going to save a remnant. I'm going to save a select group. And this select group is going to go back into the land and they're going to set up. And these people will be people after my heart who will follow me. This is what God's saying through the prophets. And so here we come to this select group who is back in the land. And it looks like they're not quite doing what they're supposed to be doing. And there's maybe a few excuses, but we'll get there in a second. Let me read for you Haggai 1, 1 through 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord. Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, it's time to pay attention, especially if you're an Israelite. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people are there. They're early on in Darius's reign. The second year, this would put us about 520 B.C. They're early on in his reign, and they're in Jerusalem. The people have returned, and the people are saying, the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, what on earth is going on for them to think they shouldn't rebuild the house of the Lord? This is the remnant people. This is the the chosen ones who have come back, who are back in the land, who are supposed to be worshiping God. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of the exile, right? They weren't worshiping God. They weren't devoted to him. But these people have now come back, and they're not building God's house. They're not building the temple of the Lord. Now, there's a, there's a whole lot that goes on here um, and goes into this. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But there's, if you look at the book of Ezra, which parallels this, Ezra kind of points out that the people aren't rebuilding the temple because of outside pressure and outside influences. Essentially, what they think is, if we rebuild it, we're not going to be focused on these nations that are going to attack us, and we need to focus on them. Uh, The people have this problem where they've rationalized their lack of obedience and in turn have sacrificed their worship of God. They've rationalized their lack of obedience and have sacrificed their worship of God. So point number one, choosing comfort over obedience results in emptiness. Choosing comfort over obedience results in emptiness. And this comes straight from the passage. Here's what God says to his chosen people. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The people are dissatisfied. They're empty. They're not fulfilled They're discontent. They have this emptiness inside of them. Why? Because they have forsaken God's house. They've forsaken the very thing that makes them different. Uh, We're going to get to that in a second, but the people's God is what separates them from the rest of the nations. The fact that God's presence would be among them would make them different from everybody else. And if you remember your temples a little bit, Ezekiel prophesied that the presence of God would be leaving the temple that it wouldn't be in the temple anymore. And this was a horrific day for the people of God, where God's presence was no longer amongst them. But this temple was supposed to represent that presence, that God would be with his people. And so this temple needs to be rebuilt. If you remember Ezra, spoiler alert, it does get rebuilt. Uh, They do end up rebuilding this temple to signify God's presence among the people. This This should be the primary focus. They come back into the land and they're distracted by economics, by politics, by uh, a desire to, to care for themselves. And they've completely forgotten the presence of God in all of that. 
that sound familiar? I think sometimes it's easy for us to go through life where we have distraction after distraction and we're so busy and there's so much happening and we forget the thing that makes us different is that God should be at the center. That the presence of God should be in our midst. As Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, we are called God's temple. That the presence of God might be in us. That we might be uh, relaying God's love to the world. Jesus calls us the salt and the light of the world. Shouldn't we be reflecting that to people? That was the problem here for the people in Haggai, is that they weren't reflecting that. And God's time and time again trying to get their attention. They're earning wages and it's going into bags with holes. They're eating, but they don't have their fill. They're drinking, but they don't have enough. They're wearing clothes, but nobody is warm. All these things, God's saying, wake up, look, wake up, look. Who do you go to for these things? Who gives you sustenance? Who gives you your fill? Who is enough for us? It's God. And the glaring hole in the people, the chosen people who were God's followers, the ones saved from exile and extermination, were the people who were the remnant. And they forgot the most important thing, that God was supposed to be at the center. The temple was supposed to be built. Haggai says, is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? Now, we don't really understand this enough. We don't have like a lot of panels and think, wow, that guy's got so many panels. He must be rich. Um, the people, they spent so much time on themselves and on their houses and on their stuff and focused on them, and they had forgotten to focus on God. So in all of this, they're doing well, they think, They're building their houses, and God's temple lies in ruins. Point A there. The people rationalized their lack of obedience, which resulted in a lack of worship. The people rationalized their lack of obedience, which resulted in a lack of worship. If you look at Ezra 4, 1 through 5, and 24, you don't have to do that now. That's where the people have this outside pressure where they decided not to build the temple. They decided that it wasn't time for that because they have to focus on the other nations. The problem with that is they're not trusting their God. If you go back to when Israel is granted a king, Saul is chosen among the people. And Samuel, if you remember, is distraught. Why would the people turn from God? God's supposed to be leading them. Why would they choose a king? And they choose this king And things don't really seem to go well. They leave their focus of God and they turn their focus to a man. Similar to what's going on here in Haggai, they're focusing on this outside pressure. We need to fix this. We need to solve this. We need to protect ourselves. And they failed to focus on God. If God is with them, who can be against them? And they've not remembered that. The people said it's not yet a time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Their lack of obedience resulted in a lack of worship. As, as human beings, we're, we were created to worship. And we all worship something. Famously said by Bob Dylan, we all worship something. Um, they worship themselves. They worship their busyness. They worship their work. And they failed to put God in the center. Uh, yeah, ch- check out... Um, 
verses, verse 6 here. Uh, here's point B. Their discontentment was expected and should have led to repentance and worship. Now, why do I say their discontentment was expected? Because in Deuteronomy 28, God said this was going to happen. If they fail to obey, there will be curses. If they obey, there will be blessings. This is the Mosaic Covenant. This is what God worked through with them. So I have a few highlights in there, 28, 18, and 22 through 23 in Deuteronomy. Uh, That's the section where God is relaying to them that if they're obedient, they will be blessed. And then later on, he's saying, if you're disobedient, if you turn from me, you will be cursed. And ironically, although not ironically, there's, there's a predicted and prophesied drought and famine. And what are the people going through? Drought and famine. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. Gee, it's almost like if they had read Deuteronomy or remembered, they would have followed and been obedient to God, and in so doing, they would have been content. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag without holes. The people became so busy. And there's natural reactions to this. There's drought. So foods, um, food and water are in short supply. They don't have enough water to have the plants grow. There's um, not enough food because of that. There's not enough water to drink. And so the short supply causes the prices to rise up. And so they work harder and they put their money into these bags without holes because it's all going to their food and their water. Um, but the, the, the thing that they never cut off in this cycle was maybe God was trying to get them to focus on Him. Maybe He was trying to get them to turn to Him and not try to work themselves out of this rut or out of this hole. They should have been obedient. Here's the application from this section. Don't rationalize your busyness as a way of accounting for your lack of obedience. Don't rationalize your busyness as a way of accounting for your lack of obedience. There's, a, there's so many times in life, especially in Southern California, where we can be so busy with so many things. And this is something we like to talk to other people about is how busy we are and how many things we have to do and what's on next and what, what we have to go to and do and how our work is... Uh, In all these situations, we can become so burdened by real things in life. But sometimes we can use that busyness to say, well, it's okay that I'm not being obedient in this season because I actually have a lot to do. The, The time that I hear this most often is when people say they don't have enough time to read their Bible. They don't have enough time to be in God's Word. Um... That, that is using your busyness to rationalize your disobedience. I haven't been in prayer as much this week because I've been super busy, you know, with finals coming up or it's been a stressful season at work. I haven't had enough time to pray. Are you using your busyness to rationalize your disobedience? There are so many things in life that would continue to come up. There's not going to be a better season to be obedient. There's not going to be an easier time to worship God. 
in the middle of storms, in the middle of difficulties, that's when our worship, that's when our obedience needs to be a priority. Um, we can't do things on our own strength. We can't do things alone. It'll never be enough. If you think forward to the New Testament, there's an interesting story uh, where Jesus is in somebody's house, and her name is Martha, and she is busy with a lot of work. She's running around, she's setting the house, and she's trying to entertain the guests and be hospitable, and her sister Mary is nowhere to be found, but where is she? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus, Martha comes up to Jesus and is like, can you tell my sister to help me? I'm so busy, there's so many things to do, and she's not helping. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better portion. The feet of Jesus is where she sat. The presence of God was in her house, and she chose to sit with him instead of to be distracted by the busyness of life. See, Martha has an argument here a little bit where she can say there's things to do, there's a lot to get done. But in her busyness and her, her sense of trying to achieve everything, she forgot the most important thing, which was to sit at the feet of Jesus, which was to be in the presence of God. And she forgot it. She thought Mary was the one who was disobeying because she wasn't working And Mary was the one who had chosen the better portion because she was sitting at the feet of Jesus in the presence of God. You see, nothing else in this world is worth it. Nothing else matters more than being in the presence of God. People in Haggai had kind of forgotten that. Forgotten to put the temple at the center. (laughs) Point number two, or on some of yours, point number four, I think. Uh, the work I thought I looked at it. The work God asks from His people brings Him pleasure. He withheld blessings to cause notice. The work God asks from His people brings Him pleasure. He withheld blessings to cause notice. Now, in a different church, this passage could be twisted and used to say things like, "If you." Obey God. If you tithe enough, if you work hard enough, he will cause blessing. And I want to tell you that that is not the gospel. And that is the opposite of what's actually taught in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus doesn't say these things. Jesus doesn't ask us to work our way toward blessings. He doesn't want us to be uh, so distracted by this world and the things that we might attain or achieve. He wants us to be heavenly focused. And so as we look at this, I want us to keep in mind... This is the Old Testament, and we're looking at the Mosaic Covenant. The people were given a relationship with with God who delivered them out of Egypt, and we're told part of this relationship is this covenant. And in order to be in this covenant relationship, we require obedience of you. And in so doing, you will be blessed in return. Different from the New Testament, um, we are called to be obedient Um, but it doesn't mean that we're going to gain material blessings. Okay, Haggai 2, 7 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, which by the way, let me stop and step back for a second. This is the third time he's used the the, the phrase Lord of hosts, the, the name Lord of hosts. 
If you remember our Names of God series, the Lord of hosts means that he is the God of heavenly hosts, of angel armies. And so when he's using this name, he's trying to convey this sense of power and authority. If the Lord of angel armies, if the Lord of the heavenly hosts is saying these things, maybe they should listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God has called for a drought here. The work God asks from his people brings, ple- brings him pleasure. He withheld blessings to cause notice. God asks his people to do this because he says he will take pleasure in it and he will be glorified. And look, sometimes the American mindset is not to bring pleasure to anybody else but you and not to glorify anybody else but you. And that is exactly what the devil wants from us. It's exactly what the enemy needs from us is not to focus on God and not to bring him pleasure, not to glorify him and have that as an end for itself. Uh, Verses 7 through 9, letter A or C in some of your notes. Their procrastination resulted in more work and less worship. Their procrastination resulted in more work and less worship. I say procrastination here because they were actually told that they can get the cedars from Lebanon. That's in Ezra. And they can get this nice wood and the, the Lord's house would be nice It would be beautiful. It would be this great place. And Happy's going to talk about how it looks next week. Um, But look, the time time is running out. And so God looks at his people and he says, you know what, just go up to the hills and get some some timber. Get some wood for the house and start building. You need to get to work on this. The time has come. It's been long enough that God has not had a house in the midst of his people. So it leads to more work for them. They have to do more. He asks his people to consider your ways, verse 7. And and, and looking back on what I said at the beginning with with New Year's resolutions and and being retrospective and introspective on the last year, I think that we sometimes don't consider our own ways before God. I think we can look at what this world calls success and say, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm doing pretty good by worldly standards. And I think all the while, our heart could not be worshiping God. Our aim might not be focused on Jesus. Look, what God requires from us isn't success. It's obedience. Sometimes we can get so bogged down by this world's standards and think, gee, I don't have it yet. I'm almost there, but I don't have this this means of success. But what he's asked for us is obedience. Obedience. That we follow him, that we submit to him, 
that we listen to what Jesus taught and said. That we pay close attention to Matthew 5 through 7 and say, Jesus, if this is what we're supposed to live like, I want to live like that. Obedience over success. The people had nice houses. They were working on it. And in the world's standards, they were being successful. But they had failed to consider their ways. They had failed to look inward at their hearts before God. Although they might have looked successful on the outside, on the inside, there was a problem. It's a huge problem. God's desire is to be glorified here. Procrastination is resulting in less worship. Uh, so, so many things in life happen that bog us down and can distract us and deter us and, and bring us aside. Um, if we are heavenly focused, if we are anchored in the truth of who God is, that we, that we desire to practice being in His presence every day, we, we find contentment and fulfillment in our work. We find procrastination less likely. Uh, we, we find our identity being fulfilled. The next point there, God causes physical emptiness to illustrate the spiritual barrenness of His people. God causes physical emptiness to illustrate the spiritual barrenness of His people. He's illustrating for them these things that you're lacking. It's not merely food. It's not merely water. It's not merely money. What you're actually empty in is your heart. Your your worship of God. This is the remnant people, remember. They're supposed to be pointed toward God. They're supposed to be worshiping Him. They're supposed to be following Him. And they've left His house in ruins. Application here. Why do we postpone obedience? Is this the cause of our discontentment and anxiety? Is our lack of obedience the cause of our discontentment and our anxiety? Listen, um, it's easy for me to be up here and to say these things, and it's hard to put them into practice. And I think it's hard for all of us to put them into practice. These are things that we, we generally agree on. We're in church. Uh, many of us identify as Christians. And so if we agree on these things, we need to be living them out. It would be easy for you to sit there and to hear this message and think, yeah, that's generally a good, good idea. We should be more obedient and we should be worshiping God more. And then walk away and not apply that to your life. So the people in Haggai needed to apply it immediately. They needed to turn and apply this right away. And so a number of days go by, and they do. Which, if you've studied the prophets, some of you have been in the Minor Prophets class, this is really rare that the people of God listen to a prophet. Uh, It doesn't happen. Like, the people of God hear these prophets, they hear their words, and they, generally speaking, don't turn from their ways. The prophet just kind of, like, gives a message. Uh, Jeremiah laments because the people aren't turning. The people aren't following God. And here's what, Hag- what happens in Haggai. The last section here, verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. 
and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all, the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The people turn and they start worshiping God. They work on God's house. Um, number, number three here. God does not call his people to obedience just to leave them. But he is with them and moves them. God does not call his people to obedience just to leave them. But he is with them and he moves them. This is a hard concept, I think, that sometimes we don't grasp enough. That God calls us and asks us to do things. Talk to that person. Work here. Serve in this ministry. Be a part of this church. Be faithfully present in your family. Whatever it may be, God calls us to do these things. And sometimes we think, cool, God, I'll do that. And we turn and we try to do it on our own works. And we try to do it by ourselves. And we think, if I work hard enough, if I do this well enough, I'll get this done and I'll achieve it. But God doesn't call us to actions just to leave us. God doesn't bring us to a point and says, good luck, you, you figure that out, buddy. You got it. No, God calls us to this point. And, and like Jesus tells the disciples and like Haggai tells his people here, I am with you. I am with you. And Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, then who can be against us? God's people are defined by this difference. Did I put it in there? I put it in uh, point A, Exodus 33, 15 through 16. The, the difference of the people of God is that God, Yahweh, the creator of the world, the one who breathes life into dust and made it a man, is with you. The spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead indwells you. So you don't go through life alone. You don't go through life thinking, I need to work hard and be obedient. I need to achieve this. I need to be successful here on your own works or on your own accord. No, God is with you. So God calls his people to do this thing. And it's a big task to build the temple. If you've read through Exodus, you see how the tabernacle is built. There's a lot of details that goes into this. The temple, uh, also very intense, very many details, but God doesn't call them to do this alone. He says, I am with you. He says, I am with you. Letter A there. God's divine presence moves among his obedient people. God's divine presence moves among his obedient people. So he tells them, I am with you. And then there's this cool phrase here. Verse 14, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of Jehozadak, 
uh, as the son of Jehoshaphat, the spirit of all the remnant people. He stirs up their spirits. Another way of saying this is he, he moved their hearts. He changed their focus. He, he gave them the ability to do these things. So God is causing his people to move to action. All they did was say, we will do this. We will obey the voice of the Lord. And God moves. God says, I am with you. And he stirs the people up to be able to do these things, to be able to move in these ways. He is with his people, and now they're moving to action. His divine presence moves among his obedient children. I put in, uh, in that header point, uh, number three, Philippians 1.6. And many of you who've either been in Awana or have memorized this verse at some point in your lives know that it says this, that he, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that if God begins something, he is going to finish it. We can be confident of that. Paul says that while in jail to the church in Philippi, that he is confident that God will finish his work. He doesn't call us to things to leave us. He doesn't leave us in these places. He doesn't give us monumental tasks and say, figure it out. No, he's with us the entire time. Let me take this a step further. Every situation in your life, if you are a follower of God, has been placed there by him for his purposes, for his glory. And I know there's a lot of difficult situations in this room. And I know that's a hard one sometimes to believe and wrestle through and, and be with, but I can tell you confidently that in all those situations that God's presence is with you, that you're not going through things alone, that as difficult as things might be, your circumstances, family, sickness, whatever it is, that in the middle of all of that, in the middle of the storm, you're not standing alone. Especially if you, if you are a follower of, of Christ, His Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And the Bible says that even when we don't know the words to pray, He intercedes with groanings on our behalf too, too wonderful for words. So in those times where you're so weighed down by circumstances, whatever it is, and you might not be able to find the words... But all you can say is, God, help me. The Spirit intercedes with groanings on our behalf, too wonderful for words. God's divine presence is with his obedient children. The last point here, his people are obedient, but not alone. Verses 14 and 15. Uh, this is when he stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. In verse 15, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, this work began. <laughs> Next week, Pastor Andrew is going to teach, and we're going to see how this work finishes. I want to tell you a little bit of the end of this story. This temple is rebuilt. Ezekiel had prophesied that the presence of God had left the temple. The temple's rebuilt, and the presence of God does not re-enter the temple. 
And that's a sad day. The presence of God is not among his people. It's not in the midst of them. A few hundred years go by, and a child walks in with his family, and the presence of God re-enters the temple because Jesus is there. Because God did not forget his people. He remembered, and he sent his son to enter into their brokenness, to enter into their difficulty. Treated as a common man, he walks in with the rest of the people. And he's not there to bring rain. He's not there to bring rule. He's there to die. In this place where they offered sacrifices, the truest and greatest sacrifice was there. And on our behalf, suffered, was beaten, was hung on a cross, was killed, bearing the price of your sins and mine. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving he had defeated sin and death. And now he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that if you're a follower of his, you will enter into eternity with him, that you will be with him forevermore that your eternity will be in his presence. So this problem of the presence of God not entering the temple is fixed when a child walks in. And now we as Christians are called God's temple with the presence of God indwelling us in the Holy Spirit. Man, that gives me chills. Because as Christians, we walk around with this thing that people of Israel never got to again realize. And Paul calls us temples. That's a heavy thing. We are indwelt by the living God, the presence of God around us. Application here. What situations in life do you view as having nothing to do with God? God does not call us to follow him and expect us to do it alone. What situations in life do you view as having nothing to do with God? Here was the problem in Haggai. They were working hard. They were building their houses. They were doing all these things, all the while their hearts were not turned to worshiping God. When God calls us, he calls everything we have. He bids a man come and die. In fact, Paul says the life that you live is no longer your own. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So what areas of life do you view as having nothing to do with God? Are you coming here thinking, I'm going to go to work tomorrow, my weekend's almost over, and Monday through Friday I'm going to work, but Sunday that's the Lord's Day again, and I'll be back and focus on worshiping God. Is God in your workplace? Have you viewed your work as worship to God? Younger people, school, Is God in your school? Or have you viewed your school as having nothing to do with God at all? This is a difficult thing sometimes. We can be be bogged down by, um, by so much busyness and so much to do that even things like ministry can turn into simply works, having nothing to do with God but just something we do out of duty. 
Um, so things like Christian schools even can become like this. They can become so mundane. Why should I have to practice God's presence in my Christian school? It's already a Christian school. Um, some of you in this room are homeschooled. Should you be practicing God's presence in your family and your homes? Uh, you, you with families, you with people around, are you practicing God's presence in your interactions with people? Are you seeing that God has something to do with that too? That the way that you love, the way that you pray, the way that you worship. I heard this quote the other day. How does a rose in the forest that nobody sees bring pleasure to God? How does it bring him worship? Because he sees it. How does your service, your prayer, your life alone that nobody sees bring pleasure to God? Because he sees it. He notices it. The God who sees what is done in secret will reward those, Scripture says. So this is Haggai 1. A lot of weight, I know, a lot of heaviness in here. Um, the people had prioritized themselves above God. That was the crux of it. They didn't do what pleased God because they believed that their busyness, that their own lives were more important. Although they wouldn't say that explicitly, that's the way they lived out. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're trained to think and say the right things. And we can appear to everybody at church as if we're doing well spiritually because we've learned what to say. All the while, our hearts aren't turned toward God. And that was the problem with the people. Their hearts weren't turned toward God. So I challenge you, Village Bible Church, and I challenge myself, that we would turn our hearts toward God this year. That we wouldn't merely just say and try to do the right things, but that we would live it out in secret. And our God who sees what is done in secret will reward those. That, that in every area of life, we would have it devoted to God and set aside for worship to him. Everything. God sent his son to die that we might have life, that we might have life abundant. Is your life not fulfilling? Are you discontent? Are you anxious? Are you troubled about many things? That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come so you could live life like that. So let's worship him this year. Let's focus on him. Let's have our hearts turned toward him and understand that he doesn't call us to come and do this alone. Let me pray. Lord God, you are good. We know that. Lord, help us all to repent and turn back to you if there are things in our life that we are doing um, that aren't worshiping and glorifying you. Lord, that we would focus on your house, on your presence, uh, understanding that our worship of you should be a priority and that you don't call us to do these things alone, but you are with us. Lord, be with all of us this year. Help us to bring you glory in Jesus' name.